0: Amen. Well, good morning, church. Uh, It's great to see you this morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet or have a conversation, my name is Adam Koontz and one of the pastors on staff here at LCF, and I help lead our our small group ministry and getting new folks connected into the life of our church. And um, any chance I get to share or preach a message of any capacity, I consider it uh, an honor. We have uh, such a wide range of gifted teachers on our teaching team and thankful for the week that they do, week in, week out, um, to help share God's Word faithfully. And uh, if you've been visiting with us past couple weeks, or this is your very first week here, we're in uh, week 158 of Genesis. Um, <laughs> Maybe like 40, I don't know. But it's, uh, we've been in Genesis for a while, but it's been really good. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22 this morning. So in your Bibles, go ahead and find yourself at Genesis 22. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 19. So we'll go ahead and read uh, the passage. This is God's word, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. Here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Then Abraham said to his young men, "'Stay here with the donkey. "'The boy and I will go over there to worship. "'Then we'll come back to you.' "'Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering "'and laid it on his son Isaac. "'In his hand he took the fire and the knife, "'and the two of them walked on together. "'Then Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said, "'My father,' he replied, "'Here I am, my son.' "'Isaac said, "'The fire and the wood are here, "'but where is the lamb for the burnt offering?' "'Abraham answered, "'God himself will provide the lamb "'for the burnt offering, my son.' "'Then the two of them walked on together. "'When they arrived at the place that God had told him about, "'Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. "'He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar "'on top of the wood. "'Then Abraham reached out and took the knife "'to slaughter his son. "'But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven "'and said, "'Abraham, Abraham.' "'He replied, "'Here I am.'" Then he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, The Lord Will Provide. So today it is said, It will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command." Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba and Abraham settled in Beersheba. The way that we're going to work through the passage today is that we're going to look at it in four different sections. We're going to look at verses one and two where God tests. Then we'll look at verses three through 10 where Abraham obeys. Then we'll look at a pastoral point to bring to light, and looking further, verses 11 through 14, where God provides. Then we'll finish up with God's promise in verses 14 through 18. So this is the roadmap we're heading. Let's pray and ask for God's help and further understanding before we begin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, for the moments in scripture that we see, um, hard realities or hard truths. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts for those. God, that we would see Jesus illuminated in these pages and um, God, that you'd stir our affections. God, we pray for your spirit to give us understanding of what we've read and how we can walk differently in light of it. Help us to behold Jesus in our hearts. God, we love you. And it's in his name we pray, amen, amen. So uh, first thing we're gonna look at is verses one and two, God tests. It says it right here in verse one, after these things, God tested Abraham. When God tests a person, he's not trying to determine if the person has faith or not. He's not trying to find out something he doesn't already know Rather, when God tests a person, he's trying to find the quality of their faithfulness. We can look at Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27 as an example of this. Moses has just led people, the Israelites from the Red Sea, and they journeyed for three days in the wilderness to find water. The people drink the water and they find out it's bitter. So the people did what any of us would do. They grumbled to their leader. Moses about it. And Moses said, Look, people, we don't have access to bottled water. Fiji and Voss are on back order. You know how Amazon gets during the holidays. Things are a mess. So Moses cries out to the Lord. Show to, and and uh, the Lord tells Moses, like, Here's a tree. And Moses takes this tree and throws it in the water. And the water then became drinkable. The next verse after that says that the Lord made a statute. An ordinance for them at Merah, and he tested them there. The people saw the faithfulness of God in that moment, but it, it was a moment where they had a moment to talk to God about it, and who did they who did they grumble to? They grumbled to Moses, and who did Moses take the grievance to? To God. When God tests a person, it's to determine the quality of their faith. When the flip of that happens, when a person tests God, it's telling of a weakened faith, a lack of faith. Exodus 17, 7, just a few chapters after that water account that I just talked about, it says, he named the place Massa and Meria because the Israelites complained and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? They tested God to see if he was even among them. Faith would have that assurance that God is with us even when we don't directly feel his presence. We even do this with people. We test people when the conditions are right to see if this person is actually trustworthy or not. We make up our own test, and it's showing a lack of faith in that person. I'm going to administer my own test to see how this actually shakes out. I was in high school, and me and a friend went to the driving range to hit a bucket of balls, We did this from time to time, so it was nothing unusual. But this specific instance, I didn't have my own golf clubs with me for whatever reason. And my friend said, don't worry, you can just use my dad's clubs. Great, problem solved. We got to the range, we started hitting the bucket, and of course, goofing off every now and again, and like high school boys would do, we tried to hit the ball in the weirdest sort of ways. About halfway through the bucket, I was using my friend's dad's driver. And it was a beautiful hit. The ball went straight. The ball went far. It was the best hit all day. I'm I'm not kidding. It was a rare moment in my world. But I saw something following the golf ball. The driver head followed closely behind the ball, also straight and far. I thought the driver felt like incredibly light afterwards. And so now if you've ever been to the driving range, one thing you don't do is you don't go out into the range. That's a no-no. That's dangerous. Don't do that. so I hold this headless driver in my hand, and I'm like, friend, just protecting the innocent, friend, what do we do? He goes, what do you mean what do we do? (laughs) You have to tell my dad. (laughs) All right. Thanks, good for nothing. So I go to the house solo afterwards, and I fess up to the driver incident. And this was a dad that I feared. He wasn't scary, but he was to be respected. And I tell him about the whole thing, told him where the head of the driver was if he desired to go back and get it. He wasn't mad, but he did say, let's see if my my son will tell me that he used my clubs without asking. Great idea, sir. I like where your head's at. You always have great ideas like that. It may have taken, my friend, a few weeks with maybe some promptings to finally fess up to the the incident. But that was a moment of testing. He didn't trust his son. And in this account here in Genesis 22, we can see that God will test in ways that cannot be explained. Like this test is, it's not tidy, it's not palatable, and that's not my aim this morning. I don't need to do any softening or sugarcoating for this to appear, PG. God is testing Abraham with the call to sacrifice the very thing that God has already promised and fulfilled, his son Isaac, the child of promise. Here he is, now give him back to me. We know being the reader that this is a test, so we can read this story even for the very first time. We would at least know at the start, this was a test. Abraham didn't have such a luxury. And this test, it weighs a little heavier than, the, than what we read in the, the last chapter. Because the last chapter, Hagar and Ishmael have been sent away. It's like two moments of heart-wrenching givings for Abraham, Scripture says that that moment in chapter 21 was very distressing for Abraham because it was his son. And God assures Abraham, though, your offspring will not be through Ishmael, it will be through Isaac. So Abraham hears the word of the Lord and he gets up early, places bread and water on Hagar's shoulders and sends them away. Now here in chapter 22, God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. The child that was just mentioned in chapter 21 that that's who the offspring will be traced through. So, Abraham cannot carry out this test except with faith. Think about it. What if the story of Hagar and Ishmael and Abraham and Isaac were swapped? If Abraham was asked, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac, and maybe he's like, Well, maybe I misunderstood that it would be through Isaac. Maybe it would be through Ishmael instead this isn't the case. There is no one else. Abraham couldn't manufacture another option. God promised Isaac. God fulfilled that promise in the way he said he would, and God asks Abraham to sacrifice him. Abraham knows what that ask also entails. Leviticus 1 would be the chapter to refer to when it comes to what sacrificing requires. We're not going to read it this morning, but the chapter uses enough language for us to wrap our minds around that Isaac will be slaughtered and then offered as a burnt offering. I mean, this is an awful two chapters for Abraham to endure. God tests Abraham. And now in verses three through 10, we see that Abraham obeys. So Abraham got up early in the morning, he saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. As if this story wasn't crazy enough, that God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his own son, it's also crazy that Abraham like does so and is willing to do it quietly. I mean, this is... This Abraham that we see here in Genesis 22 is a different Abraham than we've seen in previous chapters. Like something happened. We've been in the life of Abraham here for a few weeks and we've seen moments where it's like, bro, what are you doing? Time and time again, Abraham takes matters into his own hands, even has a moment to retake the test and maybe he'll get it right this time. Nope, still offers his wife to pass as his sister. This guy has moments where he gets it and he's got moments where he doesn't. But what happened here? The task in previous chapters, they weren't even as serious or life-altering or come at such cost. But God has this test to sacrifice his son and he does so immediately and quietly. We don't have any evidence to show that Abraham objected. We don't see anywhere in the text where Abraham would even beg for something else to happen. This is a person who has heard the promises of God, has seen God's promises been fulfilled and assured that God is who he says he is and that he could be trusted. Verse three of chapter 22 helps us tie the two stories from 21 and 22 together. He rises up early in the morning, just like he did with Hagar and Ishmael. He saddles his donkey, gathers his two servants and his son. He even splits his own wood. And in studying this passage, I found it interesting that more than one scholar addressed that the order in which Abraham was doing these things to get ready shows some sort of distress or turmoil inside Abraham. We could read this passage, and for me, it just felt like Abraham was robotic. He got up, he did what he needed to do, he trying to be obedient here, and he moved on. But why did Abraham saddle his own donkey? And why did he split his own wood? Normally those tasks would be for the young men that he had with him. I mean the young men in this story were there the entire time but did nothing. They watched the donkey but they were there but Abraham's doing all the work. Was he keeping himself busy? Was he like delaying the inevitable? We don't know and we can't know for sure but but Scholars also pointed out the order was kind of illogical that Abraham would do some of these things, potentially showing that his mind may be scattered with the task looming over him. There are many questions we could conjure up that are potentially running through the mind of Abraham. And this is an incredible story, an on-the-edge-of-your-seat kind of story, and we aren't given much detail into the inner world of Abraham, like what's actually happening in his head. But what we do know with certainty is that God has promised Abraham time and time again and God has come through on his promise and Abraham knows that God can be trusted. And God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son that is a result of a followed through promise like Isaac shouldn't even exist right now. But here we are with the child of promise, miraculously born, and affectionately cared for. And God asks for him to be sacrificed and Abraham obeys. Abraham had a faith-filled confidence that God is faithful to his word. He said that Abraham's line will be traced through Isaac. Abraham doesn't have all the dots connected, but it doesn't alter his willingness to walk in obedience. Abraham's faith attached itself to the character of God in light of his word. So Abraham and Isaac are on this journey. It's been three days. And then Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He tells the young men with him to stay with the donkey while he and Isaac go over there to worship. And then he says something fascinating. He says, we will come back to you. This isn't ignorance or a fumble of words. This is more a declaration of faith. We will come back to you then he lays the wood upon his son. And you may be aware, but just to clarify, Abraham having Isaac carry the wood tells us that he is at least a teenager, if not a young adult, probably carrying the wood on his back. The journey took them in the vicinity of Calvary. And here we have a humble, quiet son who doesn't contest any of this. Gladly carries the very wood that will be his means of death up this hill to worship. Abraham has with him the knife that will also demonstrate his faithful obedience to God. And Hebrews 11 makes the claim that Abraham by faith considered God to be able to raise someone from the dead, therefore to receive him back. The interesting thing here is that Abraham has no personal experience with life after death, but he does have some equity when it comes to God creating from nothing. God creating life from absolutely nothing. Isaac is the daily reminder for Abraham that God can create from nothing. I know God can do this thing because my son Isaac is existing right now. And if he can create life from nothing, then God can also bring life from death. He is faithful in his word and he says to the young men, we will come back to you. Verse seven, Isaac has his gears turning. Things aren't completely adding up. Like, can you imagine the quiet contemplation of both Abraham and Isaac happening between them? They journey up this mountain, just the two of them, lugging the wood and all the while having this inner battle of the mind. Like this, isn't, this just isn't making sense and dad's been acting kind of weird This entire trip, should I ask him about this? And then you have Abraham. Should I have told Sarah before I left? She's going to be so mad when I get home. I can tell Isaac's trying to add things up in his head. Just don't ask me, son. Don't ask me what we're doing. Don't ask me where the lamb is. Just don't. And then the silence breaks. Dad? Yeah, son? We have everything we need, except one thing. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And then we get this beautiful, gentle, tender answer from Abraham. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Not only did Abraham have a faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead, But Abraham also had faith that God would still provide the sacrifice. God asked Abraham to offer a burnt offering. This is an offering, a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Again, we've been looking at the life of Abraham for a few weeks now. We've had a front row seat to see that Abraham is indeed sinful. For God to ask Abraham for a burnt offering isn't out of bounds because he's been sinful. Maybe during the journey, Abraham realized that he was needing to atone for his sins, but through the son, Isaac. And Abraham, in faith, said that God would provide the lamb for the offering. So we finish out this section of the passage with Abraham building the altar. He's arranging the wood. He's binding up his willing son and placing him on the altar. And then Abraham takes out the knife to slaughter his son, And Abraham, in faithful obedience, even as he's lifting the knife, is still waiting, hoping, and trusting that God is going to provide the lamb. And as he waits for God to provide, he is remaining obedient to the call. I wanna pause in the passage to address one thing from a pastoral lens. We can read this story. This is a very familiar story. We read this story and we're tempted to read this and say, Well, what are my Isaacs? What are the things that I love that I need to sacrifice? And that very well may be something that the Lord brings to your attention. Maybe there are things you love that you do need to sacrifice. There are things maybe that aren't like inherently bad, but are they necessarily like edifying for you to love and enjoy? So yeah, there may be things that like you do need to offer up and sacrifice. But I do wanna make this one point. God is not looking for you to destroy everything that brings you joy. It's not a delight for God to have you place things you love on the altar. This is a unique moment in scripture to test Abraham. This isn't a call for everyone to sacrifice the things on the altar that we love and bring us joy. There's only speculation that maybe, maybe Abraham had Isaac on the throne of his heart. We don't know that though. And we can see Abraham's obedience that grace has certainly met, molded and shaped him into the person he is, a different person from previous chapters and he obviously isn't sinless, but this is the tension that followers of Jesus have to grapple with, that how do I enjoy and delight in the things that God has given us while not letting that thing sit on the throne of our hearts? There are things that maybe you do love that are sinful, and we do need to sacrifice those every single time. There are things that we love that aren't sinful, but they do elbow their way into the throne of our hearts, and we do need to sacrifice those for maybe a season to allow God to be on his rightful throne in our hearts. And there are things that God has given us and has given us and created to enjoy and delight in. And that's good of God, that he would allow us to just enjoy. He's not longing for us to just, oh, that makes you happy, destroy it. Oh, that brings you joy, destroy that. It's whenever we allow good things to become God things. Paul Tripp says in a number of his books that when we let a good thing become a God thing, it's a bad thing. And that's true. That's something that we have to wrestle with and grapple with, that we don't allow the gifts to, let, to allow our worship to stop there. But we talked early in Genesis, when in the creation account, that what God created, it was indeed good. But to not let our worship stop there at the creation, but let our worship push through that creation to the creator. That we can worship God through his good creation. We can sit and enjoy and sit in his goodness, but let's have the intentional awareness that this good gift does not get mastery over me. So God tested Abraham. Abraham obeys, and he's lifting the knife to sacrifice Isaac. And now we see in verses 11 through 14 that God provides the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. And then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. This is a section that's caused questions about the nature of God's knowledge. Did God not know before he tested Abraham what Abraham would actually do? Like the angel of the Lord cries out to Abraham and says, now I know that you fear the Lord. (laughs) Now I know can make us get the sense that God didn't know before, but now that you've taken all the measures I've asked, now I do know. I don't want to go too far into the weeds, but there is a theory called open theism that suggests that god is open to all possibilities of the future and that god doesn't actually know the future this theory challenges a number of traditional doctrines that about god's omniscience god's sovereignty over all things his foreknowledge and again i don't want to go too far into the weeds but there are a good number of reasons to understand the phrase now i know this translates differently than God's lack of knowledge. God's word tells us in a number of places that God does have a foreknowledge. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says, I declare the end from the beginning. From long ago, that is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. There's a moment in Genesis, early Genesis when God asks Adam in the garden, where are you? Adam's hiding from him and God wasn't fooled. He didn't need to know where Adam was. He knew where Adam was. But God's purpose was to reveal something to Adam in the answer of that question. The words, now I know, mean that Abraham passed the test and doesn't need to carry through with the sacrifice of his son. Abraham heard the message from the angel and was assured of his faith in God. Richard D. Phillips said that our trials are designed by God with a, simple, a similar purpose. Not that he would learn the sincerity of our faith, but that he would grow, that we would grow in conviction and assurance. For Abraham to hear the words, now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son from me, what an assurance for him that he can breathe a sigh of relief. I can have my son back and we can go home. Verse 13, Abraham looks up and sees a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. He takes the ram and sacrifices it as a burnt offering to the Lord in place of his son. God graciously saves Isaac, provides a way for Abraham to still walk in obedience while saving his son. And this son did not take away the sins of the father, Abraham, They are still waiting for that perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of all humanity. And just like God provided a way for Isaac to live, God provided a way for you and I to walk in relationship with God. So God provided. And now in this last section of the passage, we see in verses 15 through 18 that God promises. He says this peculiar phrase in verse 16, and by myself I have sworn. We see God do something that he hasn't done yet. He makes an oath, but not just any oath between just anyone. He makes an oath with himself. By myself I have sworn, because you have not withheld your only son. Get this, I will indeed bless you, and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. This is not just an oath that God makes with himself, but it's like an ultra extreme, are you positive this is gonna come true kind of promise. Like this is an amazing promise. And in verse 17, when he says, I will indeed bless you, this is like an, an emphatic expression from God. It's a grammatical form known as infinite absolute. This gives complete certainty. It removes any question whether this will come to pass or not. It's like a pinky promise with eye contact, no blinking, followed by a firm handshake with a silent nod. It's like, this is happening. This isn't so that God locks himself into a promise to like hold himself accountable. It's to give Abraham absolute certainty that this is going to be so, and it will come to pass. God doesn't need to do an oath. He is trustworthy with or without the oath. It was completely unnecessary for God, but absolutely assuring for Abraham. This moment made it clear for Abraham, and I want it to be clear to us today, that God holds nothing back in what he will call to the altar and what he provides. So, where is the Lamb? Where is the lamb? That's the question that Isaac asks on a journey up the mountain. In verse 8, Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. The thing is that this story tells us that he provides a ram whose horns are caught in the thicket. So was Abraham wrong? Or are we just getting too caught up in little details? Not at all. Abraham wasn't wrong. God himself did provide a lamb. It was not a spotless, innocent animal for sacrifice. It was a spotless, innocent, sinless God-man who left his throne to be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all humanity, God's own son. A child of promise, a boy born miraculously just like Isaac, However, born of a virgin of what was prophesied about long ago. God tells Abraham in the beginning of the chapter, take your son, your only son, whom you love. I think God's identifying with Abraham here. He knows the ask. He knows what he's asking of Abraham and God graciously allows Isaac to live. He could have asked for the life of Isaac and it was clear that Abraham would have done so but he spared the life of Isaac to carry the line to our Savior, Jesus. He provided a way of escape for Isaac and God entered our world through the person of Jesus who carried his cross led by the Father up the mountain where he was nailed to the cross. He was innocent, blameless, yet God held nothing back on his own son for the payment of sins. He let the son live in Genesis 22. He let God the son die. And that payment was sufficient so that now his life is credited to your account. And we can say confidently to the father, now I know God's love for me because he did not withhold his son from me. Amen. Let's stand and worship this lamb that was slain.